A couple of Wednesdays ago, Pastor Don, who was up here leading us through communion, was driving down Peach Street and gotten somewhere in between TGI Fridays and uh, Wegmans, right, right in that area. And the traffic began to back up, which is not unusual for Peach Street, but that was kind of an unusual place. And, and so finally he was able to swing around. As he p- began to pass slowly, he recognized that there was a, a black SUV in the right lane that was stopped. There was a driver in the driver's seat. His window was down. And there was another man standing outside the driver's window, reaching in and punching him. And, and finally, the guy finished. Pastor Don said he watched this happen. And, and the guy finally finished. The puncher finished. And he began to leave. And the punchee came out of the car, out of the SUV. At that moment, Pastor Don saw them coming together, and then he had to pay attention to the road. So he looked in his rearview mirror, and evidently the punch E should have stayed in the vehicle because when he looked in his rearview mirror, the punch E was now flat on the ground, so evidently the puncher threw in another punch. And the guy was laying on the ground. Finally, the guy got up. He did not go after the puncher and took off in his vehicle, and the other guy kept walking. Now, that was the same day that GE announced the fight between labor and management had ended, and and not too successfully. In fact, GE threw the last punch, and over 900 jobs were laid out on the ground. And so the question I have for us as we look around at the instances around us, what is it that keeps us from getting along? I have a confession to make to you this morning, and I've shared this once before, but I, I, I want you to hear it again. When our children were early elementary, kindergarten age, uh, we, we had this way of giving them cheap entertainment. So I would take them to McDonald's for a happy meal, and then we would, we'd head over to the, the shelter that took care of stray animals. And, 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 and so we would go, and we just, we, the kids could then play with the kitties and play with the little puppies, and, and they just loved that. And it was cheap. It was free. And then we would get to this place where they would, they, would, they would finally say to me, every trip, they would say to me, and we do this about weekly, they would say to me, oh, Dad, can, can we keep it? Can we keep that one? Can we, can, please, Dad, can we, can we, can we, can we? And I said, okay, well, let's just think about it. Then I had the strategy. Then I took them into the part of this complex where they keep the quarantine dogs. And I would, I would walk them through these large dogs and they would begin to snarl and bare their teeth, and they would charge the gate. And my kids, by the time they got done with that, would go out and say, we don't want a dog. <laughs> it was a great move. Eventually, they caught on, and they said, oh, you can't do that to us anymore. We know what you're doing. We want a puppy. So we ended up getting a puppy, a little Lhasa Apso, that, um, that we loved and, and began to, t- to train it so that it would be peaceful. But there were those moments that it was like those quarantine dogs. Cooper was his his name, and and, and Cooper had this thing about grabbing stuff that didn't belong to him and trying to take it from him. He would would snarl, he would bare his teeth, and then he would nip at us. And eventually, we just nicknamed him Demon Dog. (laughs) So you go to a community of faith, and you walk in and you go, it is so peaceful. You may be sitting here today, and, and you may be, it may be your first time here, and you're thinking, there's just this presence, and the people are so friendly. 
And then what happens when in the community of faith, you become touched by or around a fight? Say, like in a community of faith that happens? Oh, it does. Somebody snarls and bares their teeth. We snip at each other. We backbite. We throw verbal punches. And then you start thinking, this is a demon church. I I actually was, was in a church council meeting in California when one of the congregants was there and he wasn't happy about something and he actually tried to climb over the conference table to punch out the pastor. He said, but wait, isn't this the body of Christ? We just talked about that. Isn't it the body of Christ? Why would this happen? I want to propose to you this morning simply this, that fights don't happen at the cross. When Jesus was falsely accused and he was beaten, he was condemned and then he was executed on a cross. He did not fight his attackers. In fact, an eyewitness to all of this, Peter wrote these words, 1 Peter, the second chapter. They called him every name in the book, and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. He used his servant body to carry our sins to the cross so we could be rid of sin, free to live the right way. His wounds became your healing. Somehow, because he did this the right way, his wounds became the source of healing for those who had wounded him. He could have created a melee. Instead, he displayed the right way. And he wants us to know, and James says this for him, that we who are followers of Jesus have the ability to do the same thing, but it is not first nature. It must become second nature, and it will take some training, and that's why we're calling this series CrossFit. Training ourselves to do what Jesus made possible for us to do by his death on the cross. So today we pick up where we left off starting in the second half of the letter that James, the bishop of Jerusalem in the first century and the brother of Jesus, wrote to those who were dispersed throughout the eastern Mediterranean because of harsh persecution. And so we begin with these words from James in the fourth chapter, and he says this, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Quarrels is the general term for a battlefield, a war. He said, what is, what is these quarrels, this huge warfare that's going on? He said, what are these quarrels from and what are these fights? The fights are the little skirmishes that Scotty and I are having within this warfare. What causes that? Now, if you ask two kids who are fighting, who started it, what will they tell you? Yeah, he did. Scotty did. I'm telling you right now, Scotty started this. James says, I don't want to talk to you about who started it. I want to talk to you about what started it. And it begins with this. We want the wrong stuff. My wife, Pam, is one of the greatest gift givers I know. In fact, it's her love language. She just loves to give gifts. If she sends somebody a letter, she's got to throw something in the letter with that because she just loves to give gifts. So I love it when she gives gifts because she gives really good gifts. Our kids aren't around, so when Father's Day came around, I said to myself, 
Pam's going to get me a gift. And she is a really good gift giver. So the time came on that Sunday morning of Father's Day this year that I was getting ready and, and I walked in to, to take a shower into the rest in the bathroom and, and there was this card, really nice card, and, and just expressed her love to me as, as being a great father for our kids. And then, and then there was my gift. And I looked at it first and I didn't think it was my gift because there was this bottle of shampoo. It was organic, that was nice, and another little bottle next to it. I thought, well, that's just really strange. So I read it, and it's to stop balding. <laughs> I thought she was kidding, and I thought that, but there were no other gifts, and that's, that's what was there. And, I, and so in my mind, in my selfishness, because she always, she, she gives out of love, I'm thinking, today, fathers across this city are getting Blu-ray players, <laughs> stuff for their barbecue, cologne. I get something so she doesn't have to look at my bald spot anymore. <laughs> she looked at me, and I, I couldn't hide it. She said, oh, you don't like it? No. <laughs> what causes quarrels? We don't get what we thought we wanted. And James explains it. He says this, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? James used the word desires or the word pleasures, which is where we get our word hedonism. If you are a hedonist, it means that your chief goal in life is to wage this bitter campaign to get your desires, what it is that you want. And as a result of that, James says it creates three very, very negative effects. So he goes on and he says this, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. So what happens is it begins in our minds, and we begin to objectify our human obstacle, the person or persons who stand in our way. So I know I'm going to oversimplify this, and, and if you're GE Union or GE Management, please forgive me because I know you're going to say, well, wait, wait, there's more to it, but I'm just going to simplify this. So GE Management says, we just want better production because we've looked at what the future is going to be, and there's not going to be as many people wanting locomotives, and so we've got to get better production, and that's why we're doing what we're doing. And, and GE Union saying, yeah, but we gave you incredible profits last year. You should be sharing those profits with us. And so there's, there's these, these views and what we do when we get into these situations is we begin to kill others in our minds. We, we kill their opinions. We look at the union and say, no, you just, you, just, you just want to be lazy and get paid more. We look at management and we say, no, 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 you just want us to work harder and pay us less. And we invalidate the other person's opinion in the midst of our, our battle. In our minds, we're, we're already walking it through. We're already going to self-talk about how I'm going to argue this thing through. And we totally disregard any validity coming from that person who is the obstacle in our path. So we, we kill their opinions and 
we kill their value. We say, you got no worth to me. If you guys don't want to cooperate, we'll just take our people and go down to Texas. Yeah, well, you just go because we don't want you anyway. We'll get along without you. We'd rather have nothing than have to deal with this. And what we end up doing is killing the relationship. And we say, ah, but it's just the principle of the thing. So we objectify our human obstacle, and the next what we do is we wage war with our words. That's what James says. We wage war. Usually it's with our words. Sometimes it's with our own violence. So you'll say to that wife that's just really making you angry, you'll use those words, and you don't mean it in a positive way. You say you're just like your mother. Man, you want war? Try that one. She will say to him, you're good for nothing around. All you do is watch ESPN. Which is not true because he does do stuff around the house. You look at that, that adolescent and you say, what's wrong with you? Well, how can you get, how can you get an F in health? How could, how, you're, you're, you're going to amount to nothing. And the community of faith will say, well, you know, you think he's a great guy, but you just don't know everything about him. Hey, let's pray for her because the reason she has so many guys asking her out is because she puts out. I, 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 that's what I've heard. So we wage war with our words. We would rather slug than surrender. If it's true that we're followers of Jesus and Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and the way to do it right, and all these things will be added unto you, then why don't we just go to Jesus and say, here's what I need, and, 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 and there's this person in my way, there's these people in my way, there's this organization in my way, Jesus, what do I do with this? But he says, you don't do that. Number one, because you're afraid that it's not what Jesus wants you to have anyway. And you'd rather just get it yourself instead of hear Jesus tell you no. Or Jesus may tell you yes, but he may tell you to wait. He may tell you there's a process he's going to take you through. He's going to teach you to trust him, and you don't want to take the time because you're afraid if you take too much time, you won't get it. So you just ignore him and go get it yourself, and those people are standing in your way. So you begin the fight. James says, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. See, real prayer allows Jesus to rescue us his way. Appreciate the words of Curtis Vaughn who says, their requests were legitimate, but the reason for making them was illegitimate. They wanted only to satisfy their own cravings and pamper their own passions. God's glory, God's service, consideration for other people, none of these things entered into their thinking. Such prayers are an insult to God. And so we just go and do the fight ourselves without God's involvement not remembering that fights don't happen at the cross because listen to Jesus before he goes to that cross. He said, God, if there's any other way, I'd like this not to happen this way. And evidently God said, no, there's no other way. And Jesus said, okay, not my will but yours. Let's have you rescue me your way. So we want the wrong stuff and then we love the wrong place. When Pam and I lived in Oregon, and we'd been married about 10 years. She had a dream one night that I had an affair. 
I didn't, but she had a dream. She woke up and she was mad at me. I said, what's wrong with you? She said, I dreamed and you had an affair and she named the woman in the church. Very attractive woman. And she said, you had an affair with her? I said, did not. She said, I'm really mad at you. I said, it was a dream. Go back in your dream and find out that I didn't. I said, look, I hardly know the woman and I'm not attracted to her. Do you know that for several months she wouldn't talk to that woman in the church? Her emotions had seen that and felt that and identified with it, and she had trouble releasing that emotion because she was ready to protect that relationship and fight for it. God feels the same thing. James says, James 4, verse 4, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Of God. James said, This is not a dream. This is reality that you're having an affair and it's breaking God's heart. He said, You're becoming friends. The word that he uses there is phylos, which is which is where we get the word Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. He said, You have this active fondness for a world. The word that the, the word that he uses there is cosmos, which actually simply means an orderly arrangement of life and humanity together, inhabitants, that it is an organized life form, an organized life happening. It's not just chaos, but there is someone who is ordering that. But the intent of this verse is that that world is outside of God's world. And you can't have a world that, has va- that is void of any leadership. And if God's not leading, he said, then Satan is leading this cosmos, this culture, and you have an active fondness for it. Mister, it'd be like your wife saying to you, come with me. And she puts you in the car and she drives across town and she goes into a house where she has a boyfriend. And she is intimate with him for hours and you have to sit there and stare at that house knowing what's happening there. If she does that on a regular basis, sooner or later, you're going to hate that house and that part of town because it is just detestable to you for what is happening there. Playing in Satan's house is to be on good terms with God's enemy. To do that is to become God's enemy. To become God's enemy is to keep us from the intimacy of the cross. Because the intimacy of the cross is coming to the cross, recognizing that his love was so great that he died for our sins and forgave us which leaves us in awe. And the actual response, if we really understand his great love, is to love him in return. Greater love has no man than this than lay down his life for his friend. When we become friends with a culture, with a cosmos that is not God-centered, we begin to move further and further away from the truth and the intimacy of the cross. When that happens, those desires that are inside of us, those pleasures begin to yell for satisfaction. And in reality, drives us further and further away from the cross with little and little and less and less satisfaction. 
So how do I live in this culture in Erie, Pennsylvania and not be God's enemy and not love it? James says what we need is the right one. I I watched when Pam and I were about in our eighth or ninth year of marriage, we had actually become distant with each other. And, And I was not expressing love to her like I should. And I was actually spending more time at work than I should have been and focused on other things. And at, at that moment, we, uh, we had three kids and, and one was just a baby and, and just, it, it just, life was, was a mess. But I watched this very handsome, talented guy begin to move in on my wife. I, I saw it. I'm a guy. I know when, when guys are making moves. So I went to Pam and I said, this guy's making a move on you. She said, oh, no, he's not. Yeah, he is. Because I understood that I had not been complimenting her. I had not been caring for her the way I needed to. And, and this guy was complimenting her and, and, and encouraging her. And, and she was enjoying it like any woman would. So I said, let me, let me just tell you this. I'm going to give you some warning signs. I want to tell you what this guy's doing. She said, that's ah, no big deal. I said, Here, here's, here's the red flags. Here's the warning signs. I did that. And then in addition, I began to... to give greater effort to keep attached to her and to love her the way I should because I did not want to lose her. Several weeks later, she came back. She said, you're right. I said, I know I'm right. And she put up this wall and resisted him. And he went away. It's a good thing because I would have killed him. So when God sees the culture around us seducing us, because it's so subtle, when our minds get caught up in what the culture says, that's okay. When the culture begins to change our moral base, and we know that, that the moral base should not be what it's being changed to, and we begin to receive it because everybody else is receiving it, and we begin to become seduced, How do you think God responds to that? He said, you're playing in the wrong house. So here's what he does. James 4, verse 5 says, What do you think the Scriptures mean when they say that the Spirit God has placed within us is filled with envy? He said, I want to tell you what happens, that God has placed His Holy Spirit in you. How many of you are followers of Jesus? Okay, the Holy Spirit is in you, and there's a reason for that. One of the reasons is the Holy Spirit is in you to give you power to resist the seduction. There's this voice, the Holy Spirit, that will speak to you, and you've heard him. You can't come to Jesus unless you hear the call of God, his Spirit speaking to you, so you've heard it. So, mister, when when you are working way too many hours and, and your family's beginning to suffer and you hear this voice inside of you, not just your wife telling you, but you know it's true, you're hearing a voice inside of you saying, you're working too much and your family's suffering, that is the Spirit of God saying you're being seduced by whatever this is that makes you want to work more hours. When you're out playing with all the toys you've got and you're ignoring the relationship that you have with God, when you're just having a lot of fun and, and you're not spending much time thinking about God or talking to God or worshiping where God 
can reveal himself, and a voice says to you, hey, you, you need to be there. You need to study that. You need to read that. You need to turn that TV off and read the scriptures, and yet you keep putting it off. That's the spirit of God saying to you, you're being seduced by a culture around you telling you that's not important. The voice inside will tell you there's something wrong with this, and you need to change. In addition to that, God's grace gives us the ability to be intensely devoted. Not only do we walk away from a culture that is trying to seduce us, but we have to be walking towards something. And this grace says, here, let me show you how to deepen your intimacy with God. James says this, verse 6, but he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but favors the humble. He says, I'm giving you this grace. Grace is simply the ability to do what God needs for you to do. God wants you to do and what you need to do. You've got the ability to do this. But you have to humble yourself and say, okay, I'm going to give up trying to figure this out on my own, and I'm going to listen to what God has to say. So I'm going to humble myself and say, I'm going to believe in the grace that he's given me and and the the, the commands he's given me, the directions he's given me, the power that he's given me. I'm going to trust that. So James says this, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. So he says, here's what you do. Humble yourself in this manner. Submit to God. That simply means that we have to quit insisting on our own way. We we, got to quit insisting on our own rights. In fact, the only rights we have as followers of Jesus, those two rights are to love God with our whole heart and our neighbor as ourselves. Those are the only rights we have. So we've got to say, I've got to quit wanting to do this my way. And God, every day I'm going to ask you, do it your way and, and, and show me what that is because I, I want to do it your way. So when you get up in the morning, you say, okay, God, I'm submitting to you. What is it you want? I will follow you. And you, you're really intent on listening to what God has to say to you. You say, how do you hear God? Look, he is so great. He will communicate to you in a way that you'll hear him. And you begin to hear him even clearer. So every day, just get up and say, I'm going to submit to you today. I'll do it your way. Show me what you want. Submit to God. Resist Satan. Resist the devil. The whole intention there is by resisting the devil, it means that he didn't show up with his his horns and his pitchfork. What he's saying is the culture that he has created around you, that he has authored, that he has created, you resist that. You look at that and say, if Jesus wouldn't say it, and Jesus wouldn't do it, and Jesus wouldn't buy into it, I'm saying no to it. And it's a great test. Whatever you're into, whatever relationship you're into, if Jesus wouldn't get in that relationship, if Jesus wouldn't be involved sexually like that in that relationship, if Jesus wouldn't be doing those things, then you've got to say, I can't do that either. And the Scripture says when you are submitting to God and you are resisting this cultural move in your life, Satan will shun you. He'll back off. But you're not done. Then he says, draw near to God. Simply means develop the disciplines necessary in your life so that you can be with God in intimacy. So now let me step on your toes a little bit, as if I haven't already. We've got to have those disciplines that help us be aware of God around us, which includes what you did this morning. You came together for a worship encounter. Scripture says that when we worship God, when we did what we've, we've been doing this morning, 
He inhabits the praises of his people. Some of you sat here today and you wept and you're not even sure why you wept, but I'm going to tell you why. Because your creator showed up and your spirit inside said, that's him, that's the one. And you came home. And you even felt an awareness of his love for you that said, I'll forgive you for the things that have separated us. That's why I find it really difficult for us to be able to, res to, to resist the culture around us authored by Satan himself with only having one worship experience a month. And I know there's a whole lot of things, and I know you're busy, and I know that there's family things, and I, I know all the stuff. I've raised kids in this culture. I know all the demands, but I'm telling you, and especially you that are the heads of households, you need to lead your families into worship experiences. And doing it once a month is not going to give you an awareness of God. In fact, the more time you spend in worship expressions and experiences, the more you're going to recognize God around you and the stuff that is counterfeit. And if you don't, you're going to have a hard time with not being sucked into something later. You're going to go, how did I get there? So develop the discipline of gathering with the saints and worship together. The early church... We know that the early church, when, they, when this first birth, they met every day. And then we know that in the out, outlying areas, Paul would write and say, now when you get together on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus on that, on that day, when you get together on Sunday, so every week they got together so that they could withstand the culture around them. Should we do any less? We need to develop the discipline of studying his love letter to us because the, the scripture says that it is actually the life breath of God. It helps us recognize reality. It helps us recognize, see, it is the scripture that will help you understand who you are in God. Some of you have such low view of yourself. If you'd read the scriptures, you'd begin to understand as, as the spirit of God, who's the author, reveals this truth to you, who you are in Jesus, and you'd become very bold and very confident in who you are. Because you have a whole culture around you that will beat you up and you have God's word that says, no, I'm going to elevate you. But you're not going to get that if you don't study the word. So that when you have opportunity to study, as far as I'm concerned, it's not one of your options. It is, it is, it is a course that you've got to take. It's, you, you've got to study that if you're going to follow Jesus. You don't have a choice. One of those disciplines needs to be praying together. When we pray together, that's why we do that before the service in here. We invite people to come at, at 9.30, then we have anointing with oil as we closer to the beginning of the 10 o'clock service. We come together because as we pray together, there is an unleashing of a power that pushes back spiritual forces that try to lie to us. And if you're not praying together with some folks, you've left yourself wide open to deception. Also develop... The ability to confess. The scripture said if we confess our faults one to another, we will be healed. So you find those people that, that you can trust and you talk to them and they pray with you and say, okay, I'm confessing to you. Here's some of my faults. We got to well, help me work through this. But not only confess your faults to each other, confess to God. Say, God, here's who I am. When I mess up, I'll, I'll pray and I'll just say, God, I did it. And you know why I did it and I shouldn't have done it. But boy, it's difficult not to do it. I want you to know. So, so teach me how I deal with this. 
Show me. There, there is this, this, this sense that you get at times, if you're a follower of Jesus, you almost feel guilty inside. And, and as a kid growing up in a family that really followed Jesus, I'd go to my dad and say, I just feel guilty, but I don't know why. And my dad said, you're probably not guilty of anything at this point, but that is the voice of God calling you to spend time with him. There's just this void there. And so this is James describes what happens when you go before God and you confess who you are before him and see who he is. He says, here's what happens. James 4.8, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. What happens is that when you spend enough time with God, you begin to see how great he is, and you begin to see how, oof, how dirty you are. You begin to see, see attitudes and and actions that you go, oh, God, I can't believe I did that. And the great thing is that you see it before God, and you begin to mourn, you begin to grieve, and say, God, I'm so sorry. How could I have done that? How could I have done that to my family? How could I do that to my friends? And God says, yeah, it's there. Now I will forgive you and get you on your way. See, there is no fighting at the cross. Only surrender into God's love. And James says this, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. So when I was in around the second or third, no, probably third or fourth grade, living in Buffalo, New York, we had had a Sunday night service. My dad is a pastor. And, and so it was a really nice summer night in Buffalo, New York. And we lived about three blocks away, four blocks away from the church. And it was a time of life when you could walk neighborhoods without a fear of anything going wrong. So... My dad said, come on, get in the car. And so he had my, my two brothers and my sister, and, and I was with a friend, and we wanted to walk home. And my dad said, no, come on with me. I'm going to take you with me. We'll go, we're going to head home. And, and I said, no. And, and I, I threw this fit. And, and I'm the middle child. I was pretty compliant most of the time. But this time, I, just, I wanted to be a big man and, and walk with my friend home. And I gave my dad such a hard time. Finally, he said, okay, your, your decision. So I felt pretty cool. So we walked home. We were, we were studs. And, and so... We made it home, and my friend lived close by. And when we got home, my dad was pulling up in his car, and everybody piled out with ice cream cones. <laughs> now, we're, we, at that time in life, getting ice cream at a place was really a big deal, and we weren't very rich at all, so for us to get ice cream cones, that was a cool thing. I said, you guys got ice cream cones. My, my brothers and sister didn't help me go, ha, 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 I said, Dad, you didn't tell me you were getting ice cream. He said, next time, trust your father. Listen, the good stuff comes out of trusting our father. You may have had an untrustworthy father in this life, but when you see Jesus and he, ex he exposes the father's heart, you know how much you can trust that father. And it's time for us to humble ourselves so that when we have an idea and God has an idea, we say, your idea is much better, so you take me home. I'll go with you. Because we'll find that on the way home, he has and wants to elevate us to better plans, to better enjoyments, and a better life. It's what the cross proved because Jesus humbled himself and after he died on the cross, which seems like a really wicked way to follow the Father, but he did. The scripture says because he humbled himself and obeyed, the Father then elevated him to a name that is above every name. 
that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no fighting at the cross. Only elevation. So this morning, I simply ask you, you feel punched out. You feel the intensity of the fight. Let God elevate you back on your feet. It's time to trust him. Would you stand? I ask you this morning, what do you do with this now? Some of you need to submit to God. Some of you need to resist the devil. And all of us need to draw near to God. And it won't happen by first nature. It's only by second nature as we train ourselves to do so. So what will you do this week to accomplish that? So now, may you be aware through this week of the Father's great love for you. And may you recognize through the Holy Spirit the warnings of that which tries to deceive and seduce you. And may you have the discipline to push other things aside so that you can spend intimacy with the Father and discover a love that is beyond measure. We pray this for you. I pray this for you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.